This is Unorthodox. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my fellow hosts, senior writer Leah Leibovitz. Hello, hello. And deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. It's late October. The high holidays are behind us. We're coming up on Halloween. And sorry to say, it's now a major anniversary in the annals of American Judaism. It was about a year ago, October 27th, 2018, that a shooter entered the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh and killed 11 members from three different congregations. We did an episode from Pittsburgh at the time, and we wanted to revisit that wonderful city, that wonderful community in Squirrel Hill, and take some stock of where we are a year later. We have a few really terrific segments planned for you this hour, including some tape that I've gathered in the process of researching the book that I'm writing on the Squirrel Hill neighborhood in the aftermath of Tree of Life. So stay tuned later in the hour for some really, really compelling audio. And we're also doing a special interview uh, in which we talk about the question of vengeance and how to think about moving forward after such a horrific crime has, has happened. But Stephanie Butnick, it's October of 2019. It's a year later. What are you feeling? I can't believe it's been a year. I mean, I remember where I was when I found out. Um, I remember when we, you know, got into the car and drove the next morning in Liel's car. Um, it feels, I, I guess it's like how people felt about Kennedy. They remembered where they were when it happened. Um, and same with sort of like 9-11, right? Um, but I think the world has changed so much and not changed at all almost in this past year. I have a lot of just like feelings about what has gone on in the past year. And, you know, Barry Weiss had this phrase where she woke up from a vacation of not no anti-Semitism in America. I mean, I think I think that's right. I think something happened on that day where we all sort of were like, oh, this can happen here. Um and I think it, it jolted a lot of us out of our complacency and out of our, our comfort, I think, in America. And I think every day since then has been different than everything that came before it. See, I grew up in Israel, so I was, nev- I was never on that vacation. And, and I have to say, and I know it's not right, and I know that there are a lot of reasons and explanations about how these two things are not comparable, but we now live in a city that is ostensibly the largest Jewish metropolitan area in, in the world, in New York City, and there are violent attacks against Jews literally every third or fourth day in this city. So I know, you know, bashing a Hasidic man's face with a rock is not the same as entering into a synagogue and shooting 11 people, but the past year has been very dark for me, and, and I frankly, I don't see a way out of this. And this all started with Pittsburgh, right? I don't know if it started with Pittsburgh, but we definitely woke up in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I have to say that, you know, if you look at the timeline of the, the rising anti-Semitism and, and the increase in anti-Semitic attacks in America, it starts before Pittsburgh. It's been an upward trend for several years right. now, for two or three years. It got really big around 2016. It spiked, and Pittsburgh obviously was the worst of it. Although as Liel points out, you know, there is this kind of ongoing low-level pogrom in Brooklyn where Hasidic men are being attacked with some regularity and it's getting very little attention from the press. Not just from the press, Mark. I mean, the the thing that's really shocking is our wonderful mayor, Bill de Blasio, was trying to run for president when these attacks were happening. He was in Iowa. He didn't even bother calling a press conference, let alone returning to his city, let alone actually doing something to protect this community. Show me another minority in America in the year 2019 that could be bashed regularly every three or four days by violent attacks that are perpetrated directly against them, and everyone will be completely silent. So I think the reason that Pittsburgh has such resonance is because it was a guy with a gun who went into a synagogue and shot up people. 
people. I think that there is something that was so horrifying about it. And we've obviously seen it in other scenarios. You know, there was the Charleston shooting, there was the Christchurch shooting, but I think that it was impossible to ignore. And I think the thing we learned about Pittsburgh's Jewish community when we were there reporting in the days after the shooting is that it is a unique place. You know, it is a really, really unusually close-knit community, which runs across, you know, the Jewish religious spectrum and the political spectrum. I mean, you don't really see that in a lot of other places. And I think that's why there was such an outpouring of support, you know, like the Steelers logo changing and all these bigger institutions beyond just the Jewish community just really standing with them. And I think it's, I mean, look, it's a black and white example of horror. There was thing about the Pittsburgh massacre that is so, you know, news ready, right? It is a guy walking into a synagogue with guns, screaming about the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society and shooting a bunch of people, most of them old or otherwise, you know, vulnerable. They were the people who were at the synagogue at the beginning of services. Right. This is this is a sign that the shooter doesn't know Jews at all. If you show up at 930. For, who, yeah, there's not that many people. And it's, you know, that's why part of the horror of the attack was that the people were like kind of old and, and you know, they were just vulnerable. And I think that's part of why there's such resonance. I've been thinking a lot about the history of mass shootings in America, an era that roughly begins with Columbine in 1999. And I realized, first of all, that this is what's in many ways defined my adulthood. If I think about the news cycle is the the punctuation of mass shootings, you know, which started when I was three years out of college. I mean, basically, I, I got out of my youth mass shooting free. And then while I was in graduate school, Columbine happened. And then, you know, 2007, just after I got out of graduate school, Virginia Tech happened. And then it's been this su- sort of steady drumbeat. I was a young father when Newtown happened, 25 miles from where I live. So in one sense, you know, it's been the worst of times in terms of violence in America. There are these interesting wrinkles, though. I mean, for one thing, it's striking to me how few of these mass shootings are hate crimes against religious or ethnic groups. I mean, Mother Emanuel down in Charleston, for sure. If you think of the Pulse nightclub shooting, which was clearly an anti-LGBT attack, if you think of Tree of Life. But most of them, the vast majority, are disgruntled people who were mad about high school or they're mentally ill or angry at employers or there's just or there's no making sense of it. So, you know, one wants to be careful. We are, we are so far from where they are in parts of Europe. Europe, where there seems to be so much xenophobia and so many of the attacks, the expectation is that attacks have a component of ethnic or religious or anti-gay or anti-immigrant bigotry. The other thing is that this has all happened at a time when violent crime in America and gun homicides generally have fallen to very, very low levels. If you look at gun homicides, not gun deaths, because that would include suicides, but if you look at gun homicides, you know, they're down at the levels of 1960, 1961. We're in almost the safest of times in America. So it's this very, very strange time to be Jewish in America and to think about safety. It's at once fairly safe if you look at some statistics and also fairly terrifying if you look at what's happening in the news. I think that's completely right, Mark. And emotionally, one really interesting thing that I started noticing only three or four months after Pittsburgh was this sudden reaffirmation of what Zionism truly meant to me, which is something I had never really stopped to think about, again, growing up in a Jewish state and then coming here and just immersing myself in a Jewish community. But all of a sudden, I had this moment walking around thinking about this because it was still fresh in my mind. And I thought, wait a minute. I mean, this is precisely 
why we need this idea of self-definition, of self-protection, of sovereignty. This is precisely the problem that Zionism is here to solve. And, and it all of a sudden kind of swept over me this notion that I had always known intellectually, but never really felt emotionally, of how important it was to have a place and, and also have a mindset in which you're free to defend yourself. It's arguable that, you know, some would say the place has made Jews safer. Some would say the place has been a very dangerous place in some ways. But what's not arguable is the mindset, the idea that wherever Jews are in the world, that we should be responsible for our own self-defense and be mindful about right. taking care of each other, you know, physically if if necessary, right? And that's that's true, you know, in the diaspora as well as in Israel. And it's especially true, I think, in democracies where the power doesn't all rest with an authoritarian state, God willing, right? That that people have some responsibility in their localities and even in their kahillas, in their Jewish communities, to say, how are we going to take care of each other? And how are we going to stand up to to violence? You know, are we relying on police whom we trust or on private security firms whom we hope to trust? Or are we arming ourselves? Or are we just locking doors? Or are we just being mindful? Or are we wearing little Secret Service earpieces? That's an important conversation, right? It's it's one that we have to have at this point in time. You're on the ground there. What have you been seeing? Well, as you know, inspired by really the work that you guys did on the ground for our special episode from Squirrel Hill last year, that inspired me to do this book that I'm working on. And I've been to Pittsburgh, I want to say about 30 times since. The Hebrew calendar yard site is in uh, mid-November. So that'll be sort of the end of my year of research. Let me offer a few observations. The first has something to do with trauma. I've had the privilege of interviewing a number of people who were inside the building and got out. And I've interviewed a number of people who lost relatives who were murdered. The first observation I want to make is that trauma in many ways makes people more like themselves. Now, this isn't always true, but for a lot of people, if they were struggling with depression or sadness or grief or anxiety beforehand, something like this can really exacerbate that. And so you see people for whom this has been the trigger to end all triggers and the depression they've suffered with has come back strongly uh, or their anxiety is worse than ever. Then you see people who are really, really upbeat with a lot of resilience and I talked to people who honestly were very, very close to the shooting or even in the building who bounced back fairly quickly and will tell me, you know what, I'm really doing fine. And, and this accords with certain psychological research we know that people after an episode of tremendous grief often reset to whatever their baseline was beforehand pretty quickly. Now, this is by no means true of everyone, but uh, the expectation that I'd be entering a community that six months or 10 months later would be just wallowing in grief or would be suffering all the time isn't exactly right. And that leads me to my second point, which is people say to me, is this a depressing book? And I say, well, it's sad, but it's often very hopeful because in a community organized around neighborhood and around houses of worship and around community centers, in a neighborhood like Squirrel Hill, where within one square mile, you have a JCC and a public library and a public high school and you know several religious schools and a dozen synagogues, You know what you have is people who are very well positioned to help each other and to perform extraordinary acts of loving kindness in the aftermath of something like this. So there are a lot of really, really happy stories stories of people caring for each other. And that's not to take away from the grief, but it is to say, you know, that there are a lot of really cheering stories of human empathy and resilience. And then I think the last thing that I would say, you know, tying into the second one, the geographical aspect of it. I mean, Squirrel Hill is a place that's very compact where people really bump into each other all the time. And, you know, somebody said to me, 
it really helps that every time I go to the Giant Eagle, which is the, the big supermarket, that there's somebody I know who can give me a hug. It's really just affirmed a lot of what I felt about how people are meant to live near each other. In some ways, the worst thing that ever happened to America was the Eisenhower interstate system and the suburbanization, uh, which of course, religious Jews had to resist because they have to be able to walk to shul and form minyanim and be near each other, right? We need critical mass. So that lesson is something that's really been reaffirmed. First of all, it's an argument for community, right? And the idea that when something horrible happens, if you have a tight-knit, strong community, they can support each other and be there for each other. But, you know, there was so much external attention on Pittsburgh when it happened, right? I mean, obviously, there's going to be a lot of attention on the first anniversary. But do you see that larger infrastructure of support? Still? Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting is obviously this was a tragedy for world Jewry and there was a lot of attention, a lot of money flowed in, which they're now figuring out how to spend. And a lot of people visited, many Jewish, many Gentile, uh, including the woman we had on the show who baked pies in Minnesota and, and flew them in. There was a moment when everyone was thinking about Squirrel Hill. And what's interesting is, and this is a very important point as well, that the world resets, right? People go back to normal. And I'm now at the point where I will sometimes tell people that I'm working on a book about Pittsburgh and they'll say, oh, like about the death of the steel industry or, (laughs) you know, how the Steelers are struggling. Like they don't hear Pittsburgh and think tree of life shooting. This includes, by the way, a lot of only marginally affiliated Jews. There are a lot of people for whom this shooting has been occluded by Dayton and El Paso and whatever's going to come next. The other thing I'll say is even within Pittsburgh, uh, We're recording this before October 27th, and the Jewish Federation has worked very hard to plan a a big day of events, day of action. It's going to include Torah study, public service, and a big gathering at Soldiers and Sailors Hall, which is where you guys went to the vigil. You know how many people will take place in this day? How many people will feel the need to keep processing a year later or to market? We don't know because honestly, like people do move on. You know, something interesting, I was in Pittsburgh a few weeks ago to do this shofar blowing that Tablet had coordinated in Crown Heights, Pittsburgh and Poway um, to have the shofar blown at the same time and to give out apples and honey. So I did get to see a little bit of the community. But, you know, I was talking to Barb Feig, who was part of our episode last year, and she told me something really interesting, which is that people are sending art to Tree of Life from all over the country, all over the world. People are creating art and a lot of it is tree based because it's Tree of Life. Right. And it's just landing on their doorstep, basically. And I think that was really, really fascinating to me, this idea that people are creating art objects. And, you know, that goes from like kindergarten classes to, you know, true artists. That is so fascinating because people are inspired to create in support, but also in, in celebration of what it means to be called Tree of Life. And that, you know, the Torah is a tree of life and you can sing that song. Look, there's no question that there was a huge outpouring of support and people people who felt they had to do something. And so they did something. And it was sometimes sending money and it was sometimes sending art. It was sometimes showing up. One of the interesting things is that there is not, as far as I can tell, been a massive outpouring of re-engagement with synagogue life in Pittsburgh. Rabbi Jeffrey Myers at uh, Tree of Life in his uh, second day Rosh Hashanah sermon, he repeated part of it at Kol Nidre, the night that begins Yom Kippur. You know, he talked about how the plan right now is to begin a rebuilding process. There will be some renovation of the interior, I think, so that the rooms where there are bullet holes don't look exactly alike. The architectural plans are still to be decided. But then there's going to be a recreation of a lot of the space, a reimagining of the building uh, at the corner of Shady and Wilkins. They're going to have some tenants move in. The Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh is probably going to move in. And they're going to, like, get the building going again. And I think three years from now, it will look very beautiful, redesigned, rebuilt. And then he said, quite frankly, he said, if we don't rejuvenate this congregation, we're an aging congregation. And if we don't get some new blood, we have 30 years left. The clock starts ticking now. 
and I need to know, are you with me? And he got the people in the pews to shout, you know, we're with you. Yes, we're with you. But of course, the people in the pews are the people who are members. I don't want to belittle the kind of emotional need that people feel to do something. And I think sending a piece of art to a synagogue that's been attacked is, is a wonderful gesture. But at the same time, I really think that's the lesson we haven't learned from Pittsburgh, right? The Shabbat after Pittsburgh uh, was a kind of Shabbat of action. People all over the country went to Shul. I went to mine. It was jam-packed. There were a lot of Jews, a lot of non Jews who came in solidarity. The Shabbat after that, you know, there were like 30 people there as usual. If you want to take one thing away from Pittsburgh, if I may, it's this. It's about community. We're not going to survive unless we stick together. And sticking together doesn't just mean, you know, showing up for rallies when, when shit goes south. It means showing up every week. It means actually engaging yourself in Jewish life. doesn't have to be in a synagogue. That's right. But it does have to be in some sort of communal life. That's right. It ha- does have to be through some kind of action that directly affirms and celebrates Jewish pride and, and Jewish belonging. Go study something. Go join a group. Go do anything that's really Jewish with other Jews. There is no substitute for this. It's not easy, but it's essential. Many people have re-engaged. I mean, I've talked to people who decided this is the year I have to learn to read Haftorah because a person who always read Haftorah was killed. And those are some of the most moving stories in the world. At the same time, all those people would tell you that there has not been a mass re-engagement with synagogue life or with Jewish life generally. I think there's been a lot more identification. I think a lot of people, something woke up in them, but... No community that I know of has experienced some sort of weird surge in affiliation. Yeah, has seen this kind of profound surge in affiliation of any kind of Jewish life. And that's something we have to really think about. But that puts a lot of onus on the community, right? Like, so what if your synagogue that you grew up with is not particularly inspiring, right? What if the leadership isn't engaged? Then you find five Jews in your neighborhood who are cool. You have them over Saturday morning for, you know, eggs and bagels. And you sit and discuss a novel that you like that's Jewish in some way. It's not easy. The problem is if that's happening, we wouldn't know, right? I think we would because we we live in this community. I think it's happening sometimes. I mean, I know a Yale undergraduate. She said, by the way, I've started having, you'd be interested to know, I have Shabbat dinner every Friday night at my apartment now. And in fact, like I knew somebody then invited her for Shabbat dinner and she turned him down because she said, I can't come because actually this is one of the nights we're doing it at my apartment. Like, of course, there are people we don't know about, but I still talk to, and I talk to hundreds of people. I still talk to a lot of people who are waiting for some professional with lots of charisma to come rope them in. And that's just not a grown-up way of looking at communal life. It's also not a Jewish way of, I mean, the Parsha that we read right before Shoshana was basically Moses saying, hey, look, it's not in the heavens. It's not across the sea. It's right here. It's difficult. It's up to you. You want to lead a good, purposeful life? Go ahead and do it. You know how. So let's leave people with one thing they can do as we approach this one year anniversary. I do love the idea of like starting to have people over for Shabbat dinner. I mean, that seems like something I conceivably could do, right? You don't even have to cook. Take take a page from the great wisdom of Mark Oppenheimer. Just order Domino's. In New Haven, we order modern. We order modern abits. Uh, abits. <laughs> that must be abits. the hard part of living in New Haven for you. You can't eat Domino's anymore because pizza is actually good there. My kids would go nowhere near Domino's. They're such pizza snobs. All right, I'm going to give people two. Number one is if you have kids... Sign up for PJ Library and wait, don't just get the books, but they will give you $100 for you to host a Shabbat dinner. It's easy. It's like a one minute, one page sign up online. And they say, if you send us pictures from the Shabbat dinner, take the pictures before sundown, right? When as guests are arriving, we'll reimburse you. We'll cut you a check for $100 to pay for the food. So there you go. Let's break the bank. Let's absolutely destroy the Harold Grinspoon Foundation by having thousands of people collect their free $100 for Shabbat dinners that they host. So that's number one. There's also One Table, which is an amazing organization that basically helps you host or find 
trying to Shabbat dinner. So that's onetable.org. And I think that is a really nice way for people, particularly who have just moved to a new city, to find that Jewish community, whatever it may look like. Right. Number two, uh, and I, I've said it before, I said it, I think, on last week's episode, if you have an extra hour or five to give of community service, ask some community rabbi, is there some way I can help? And see where that leads you. Liel. I love those ideas. I'm going to go a bit nerdier. I'm going to say read a book. Each one of us has some kind of, even those of us who are you know more learned in Jewish things, have, have some kind of text that we've always been curious about. Maybe you've always heard about the Talmud, right? But have never cracked one. Maybe you think, you know, there's some kind of Kabbalah-related book that you've always wanted to get to the bottom of. I think a great thing to do is take a few hours on a Saturday afternoon, morning, evening, whenever you have some time. Maybe it's Friday night. Get a book that you would never engage with otherwise. Have a glass of wine ready. Clear your mind. And sit and really dive deep into learning because, you know, we are a deeply textual, healing-based sort of religion. And there is so much wisdom that is ours. It is our heritage. And we cannot afford to turn our back to it. And you don't have to live by all the rules. And you don't have to really become a scholar who knows every citation. But just to get a taste of what this is like, just to let it sink into your heart, I think is immensely important. Stephanie. I want to say, like, this podcast, right? I'm not, I'm not like, tooting our own horn. I'm saying that for a lot of people, this is their Judaism, right? Like, this is how they want to engage. They don't either have a community. They don't know how to find a community. They may not need need a community. I want to say that this is engagement that that counts for all of this stuff. And yes, no one might know about it because you're just popping in your earbuds. But this to me is important. And for me has created a community of people, you know, in our Facebook group, in our inbox that I have been connected with and I have been really inspired by and moved by. And it has changed my own perception of the Jewish community and how I want to engage with it. So I guess you can find that community, I think, in, in unexpected places. I think you're completely right. And, and and this is a good moment since we're in this, this uncharacteristically earnest moment. I know, to, I hate it. To really tell our listeners, the sense of community that we feel with you is very real and very meaningful to us. The fact that we don't personally know you or we might not have met you doesn't diminish in the least from, from the, the absolute joy and comfort that we feel. And knowing that we're all in this together and we're having the same conversations and we're engaged in the same mental uh, exercise, we're very grateful for it. And I think the response to our initial Pittsburgh episode, which um, listeners can find in our podcast feed, we went there. We could go there. And then we basically brought a snapshot of a community in crisis and healing to the rest of the country who wanted to, to be there in some way for that community. And they were able to sort of have a window in. Amen to all of that. And a big hug going out to Tree of Life, New Light, Dor Hadash, and the whole Squirrel Hill and Pittsburgh community. When we come back, a conversation about forgiveness, vengeance, and moving on in just a moment. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. 
Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. I had some questions about the perpetrator, and so I called the one person who I knew would know the answers. She is Beth Kisseliff, a Pittsburgh-based novelist, journalist, and author of a weekly Torah portion column. Her husband is also the rabbi of New Light Synagogue, one of the three synagogues attacked by the shooter. Beth, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Happy to talk to uh, Unorthodox. I know that over this last year, when you refer to any of the victims, you did not say, may their memory be a blessing, which is something we often say about the dearly departed. You said something else. What? What is it? There's a formulation in Hebrew, Hashem Yikom Damav, or Hashem Yikom Damam in plural, that God should avenge their blood. And this is what we say anytime a Jew is killed for the sake of being a Jew. And uh, I had never expected to know any martyrs personally, and it's it's always very jarring uh, to say that, but it's really a much more appropriate formulation because we want to remind people what happened and how these people died. They didn't just slip away. They weren't felled by illness, but someone killed them uh, because of who they were, because they're Jews. But it's also important to keep in mind that that, to me, that formulation means that it's not in our hands. It's not in human hands to avenge them, that uh, there's there's something uh, above humans that will uh, create the appropriate vengeance, and it's not for us. For me, the appropriate punishment for this perpetrator would be to be in jail, and I'm really not concerned about what will happen to him. I totally hear you about this important distinction that only God could avenge their death. At the same time, and and I'm not being, you know, flippant here, there's a not insignificant part of me that is so wrathful. I may just kind of want to see this guy getting executed 
on live TV, you know, in a pay-per-view, like a boxing match with like Gal Gadot hosting the ceremony with people, you know, passing along bagels to everyone in the audience. Kind of a spectacle of vengeance over this monster who had murdered so many innocent people. And, and I know it's strong, but, but I want to ask you two questions here. The first is, how do you feel about this personally as someone affected by this tragedy? And the second is, what, is, what does the Talmud tell us about quelling our, our need or our desire for revenge? Yeah, well, the, the Talmud tells us there was uh, once a case of capital punishment where uh, someone witnessed a man go into a place where there was another person, and the person came out with a bloody knife, but the person didn't actually see this man commit the murder. So it seems circumstantially the person committed the murder, but if there's not a witness, there's no ability to have the death penalty. But the Talmud there talks about the ways that that person who perpetrated this murder might die, that perhaps a snake will bite him, perhaps there'll be a flood, perhaps there'll be a hurricane. There are, there are all kinds of ways, uh, I believe, that vengeance can be inflicted on the world, and it doesn't have to be at the hands of humans creating vengeance. You know, Jews are supposed to be Rachmanim b'nei Rachmanim, compassionate ones, children of compassionate ones. And for me... I'm with Sister Helen Prejean, who's Catholic, but a, uh, f- a fervent uh, anti-death penalty advocate. It's possible someone on death row could still do some good. You know, what if this person decided to abjure white supremacy and called out to his fellow white supremacists to repent for their ways? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Wouldn't that do much more good than air trying to watch and eat bagels and take vengeance? That's just not... What I think is important, what I think is really important, uh, I wrote an article about this for the Religion News Service in February called The Jewish Way to Avenge the Shooter, and I referred to the Eichmann trial, which I'm sure you are familiar with. The person that actually hanged Eichmann, his name was Shalom Nagar. There was a movie made about him uh, in Israel a number of years ago by uh, director Avigail Sperber called Hatalyan, the hangman. And it talks about his life after he was chosen, uh, supposedly by a lottery, although because he he was Yemenite. Uh, it seems that the uh, racism of Israel uh, decided that play. it would be appropriate to put it on him. Yeah. It really affected him. It was very, very hard for him to cope with all kinds of things later on in his life. But when his identity was finally revealed at the end of his life, German TV came to interview him, and they wanted him to go to their studio and record uh, an episode where he talked about his experiences hanging Eichmann. And uh, he said, no, you you have to come to the Kolel where I study every day. And they said, well, you know, the sound is better in our studio. We don't really think it'll be so great to go to your Kolel. And he said, no. Um, and I I'm quoting now. He said, uh, the reason why I need you to come to my study hall is I want the German people to know that not only did the Jewish people survive physically and are here in Israel, but also that we are still learning Torah. You could not destroy us. I want them to see Jews alive and learning Torah, for the Jewish people live and the Torah lives too. So I believe personally that the most important vengeance for the murder of either 11 Jews or 6 million is for the Jewish people to live and the Torah to live, not for their killer to die, not for us to try to have vengeance on him. I think it's much more important for us to devote ourselves to Jewish life in whatever way that means. I I think it's actually uh, Judah Samet, who's a Holocaust survivor, who uh, was outside the synagogue on the day of the shooting, narrowly missed being inside. He said, 
said it's letting him off too easily if you give him the death penalty. You know, I think it's much, much worse to just give him uh, life in prison. Stick him in the cell and live stream every service from the Tree of Life synagogue from now until the end of his days. Exactly. And make him watch Jews learning Torah and observing the holidays and all of the cycle of the year. That would be fantastic to have live stream <laughs> of, yeah, all the, uh, the families of all the people that he tried to harm continuing to live Jewish lives. That's, that's much more satisfying to me. Exactly. I'm glad your mind works that way, Leo. Beth Kisseleff, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Leo, and thank you, Unorthodox. As you, my good friends in the J. Crew, all know, I've been going to Pittsburgh often over the last year working on a book about the aftermath of the Tree of Life shooting. And one of the extraordinary things I found is how receptive people have been to my project, including people who lost loved ones and sometimes almost lost their own lives in the process. I want to introduce you to two people who went through hell, I think it's fair to say, and yet made the time to offer me hospitality to share their experiences with me. Andrea Wedner is a dental hygienist and a lifelong Pittsburgher. She's also the daughter of Rose Mallinger, whom she would drive to synagogue at Tree of Life most every Shabbat morning. She and her mother like to arrive early, so at 9.30 or so on October 27th, 2018, Andrea picked up her mother and drove them both to synagogue. I'm going to play you some tape that I recorded with Andrea and her husband, Ron, sitting on the porch of their house in Squirrel Hill, which is one reason why the sound quality is a little bit different from what you'll often hear. This was a recording outside using my little handheld tape as I do a lot of my interviews. What Andrea is talking about as Ron sits there listening and occasionally interjecting is about how she went inside with her mother and they were shot at. And look, this gets pretty painful. So here's a place where some of you might want to take a pause and find another podcast if you're not up for hearing it. Okay, if you're still with us, here's what happened. Andrea was hit in the arm, and her mother was murdered right next to her. So Andrea and her husband, again, are talking about difficult stuff and in more detail than I just gave you. So again, a segment for some people to skip. But for those of you who are still with me, it's worth a listen. Yeah, it was just a regular Saturday morning. Picked up my mother. We so went what to time school. Did, what time did you usually get your mom? Between 9.30, 20 to 10. We, services would start at 9.45, and we'd usually get there before they started, maybe right a little after they started, but we were pretty much on time. She was an on-timer. So we uh, get there, I park, and uh, we go in, and we go in the chapel, and there's Sylvan and Bernice Simon were standing in the back. We were talking to them, and I think our younger was there, too. We said good morning, and we talked for a few minutes. And then we went and took our usual seats. Everybody kind of sat in the same spots. And we sat down, and the service started. Who was, uh, uh, was Audrey? Audrey, and um, David Rosenthal was always up there with her. He would stand then, next to her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the rabbi was would be up there or sitting in the chair up there. Yeah. I thought they were all dead. You thought what? I thought they were all dead. Audrey and the rabbi. Not because what she saw, but because no, what she pursued. No, just because, yeah, because yeah. they were up front. I didn't know they walked out. So um, we're sitting there, and Steve Weiss was standing in the back, and Cecil was in the back, and Irv was in the back. Irv always stood in the back. He handed out books. The, the Simons took their regular seats, and um, we heard a loud crash. So everybody thought it was the coat rack that fell, but it was when he shot through the windows. So we all kind of turned around, and then we heard the gunshots. 
But in the meantime, Steve had run out. I thought he was dead. Steve Weiss. Steve Weiss. Irv ran out to see what the noise was. So he got shot out in the hall. Cecil went out. I saw him get shot. Um, and then he came in. And we were facing the back because we were all looking back that way. And that's when he um, started shooting in there. And I saw my arm get blown open. It hurt like hell. Was that the most painful thing you've ever? Yeah, it was. It's funny too, because when I, one of the first things I asked you when I saw you in the hospital, did it hurt? Because you hear people getting shot, and I didn't even feel it. Didn't even know I got shot. No. But no, you yeah, said it hurt. It, it hurt. <laughs> Which kind of surprised me. Two places. So I don't know if it went in and out. I don't know how, how it did, but it severed the nerve. And, um, and then in my hand, here and here, there was, I just remember when I was lying on the floor, there was a lot of blood. And I remember my hand kind of like open, like raw meat. And I couldn't move it. So um, I called 911. Try. Yeah, I did. I, yeah, did. At first, I couldn't. My hand was shaking, and I was using my left hand. Well, I lay there for a while. I laid there until he, um, at one point, and I don't know if it was right. It must have been at the same point when he was in there. He came around to the side and just kind of looked. It was quiet, and I just laid there. And then he left, and it was quiet, and that's when I called 911. And they said that someone had already called. They were there. They were in the building. So at least, you know, I knew. Because I didn't know the rabbi got out and called. And you don't know if everybody's right. dead and no one called or what. So um, so I just laid there. And your mom was next to you? We were head to head. Was she conscious at all? No. Mm -hmm. yeah. She was, um, it sounded like she was breathing, but it was just, uh, it wasn't a normal breathing. Like I said in the interview, it was just a noise that was coming out. And I felt her pulse, and it was very, very weak. And then she was shot in the head. Is there a sort of comfort that you were there with her? Do you sort of, is that something you think about? Um, yes, and also that it wasn't the other way around, because she would have died. She would never have lived if she had seen me, you know. And, um, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was just, the hardest part is that the way she died. And that she shouldn't have died yet. She, she, oh, she would have lived to be 100. She just had so much life in her and so much, wasn't sickly. Yeah, it's amazing. Had her, she had her pain. Arthritis and, and this and that. But she didn't complain. And she just, yeah, that's what hurts the most. Eleven people were killed that day, and just as many were inside and got out with their lives. Overcoming that kind of close brush with death, which for so many people really is trauma, is a strange experience, and no two people react in the same way. Joe Charney is a retired psychiatrist in his 90s. He was inside that morning, worshiping at Tree of Life. He saw the killer. The killer saw him. But then he wasn't shot at. The killer moved on to other people. Here are Joe's thoughts about how that moment lives on in his life. 
I mean, shit happens, and it's just so happened that it didn't happen to me. Right. Right? <laughs> it's different being 91 than it is <laughs> being some other age. I know they've been having groups for survivors, ther yeah. therapy groups and yeah. stuff. Have you gone to any of that? No, I don't think I needed it. I've had several people come and visit me and talk with me about what happened. And, but I haven't felt... I haven't felt the need for any therapeutic in intervention at all. There are so many questions in the aftermath of a mass tragedy and no easy answers. One particularly difficult question is what to do with a building that's been shot up. There are literally bullet holes pockmarking the Tree of Life building. And one possibility is to just go back inside. This is what I call the Israeli answer. You know, there's a, a bombing in the morning at a cafe. They clean up the blood and, the, and patch up the walls. And then they're back in that afternoon. You just keep on keeping on. Another answer, equally valid for some people, is that you raise the whole building to the ground. You obliterate the evidence of this disaster so that people can start fresh. And then, of course, there's so many other answers, everything in between. And it seems in Squirrel Hill that for every person who has a stake in what happens to the Tree of Life building, this would include members of all three congregations that were housed there, Tree of Life, New Light, and Dor Chadash, as well as many, many other people who live near the building, who have worshipped there in the past, who grew up there, who walk by it. Everyone has an opinion. Andrea Wedner and Joe Charney, for example, have different points of view. Here are Andrea and Joe again. Do you have feelings about what should be done with the building? Yes. I'd like it leveled. But the middle part, the not middle. the The sanctuary was untouched. That can stay. Right, and the, and the um, Robertson Pavilion. Well, they would do that too. But yeah. I, I would like it knocked yeah. down. The middle down all the way to the parking lot. Which is where the violence all was? Yeah, it was in that area. It was mostly in the chapel. And downstairs. downstairs. And, and it was in that basement that kitchen, center. whatever they want to call it. Yeah. Do you think they will? I don't know. They had. Uh, they said that they haven't made any decisions yet. We're going to be going to a meeting, and we'll hear what we have to say. There's some people who want it knocked down. They don't want it. I don't want it to look anything like it looks now. I don't want to go in it until it's totally different. And then there's some people who, because they think it's a beautiful building and they've been members forever, want to try and keep some of it. So, I don't know. Do people think if you knock it down, then the, he that, won. the bad guy wins? He won. If they don't knock it down, they have to remodel it to a point where it's, it's unrecognizable. It's mm -hmm. totally different than what it was before. It's an old building, too. It needs to be brought up to code. It might just be easier to True, that's, knock that's another point, too. And of course, they knock it down, it'll take longer for it to be, yeah. to come back. Whatever they do, we'll, we're not going to point fair. You say we didn't, we don't like what you did. We never go back in there, we never go back in there. I would like to for my mother, for my parents. That was um, their life, so. What about the building? Could you, do you, what do you think they should do with it? Rebuild it. For some people, it's a question of, they say, well, I could never go back inside because it's the site of such tragedy. You don't feel that way. No, I feel the other way. To show them that, uh, that there is some shit I will not eat, I'm going to go back there. <laughs> Have you been back inside? Yes.
My thanks to Andrea and Ron Wedner and Joe Charney and the scores of other people who have shared their stories with me in this past year. I keep coming back to the vigil that was held one night after the shooting in which the entire Pittsburgh community, Jewish and not, came out in a tremendous show of solidarity. And there's one particular moment uh, from that vigil that we aired last year in our podcast and we wanted to share with you again just because it was so deeply moving. We needed to be here because at times like these, we need community. We need the comfort of each other. We need love, not hate. And we need that giant hug that this Pittsburgh Jewish community always gives. We lost more than a minyan of our community yesterday. The traditional Jewish way to respond to news about the death of an individual is to say, blessed is the judge of truth, or in Hebrew, Baruch Dayan Ha'emet. And when 11 people are slaughtered, we say it 11 times. Baruch Dayan Ha'emet, 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 our hearts pour out to all those who lost loved ones and to those still fighting for their lives in the hospitals. We want to thank so many who did so much yesterday. Thank you all for listening. We want to extend our thanks to Beth Kisilev in particular for talking with us about vengeance and, of course, to all those who helped with production. But the names we want to leave you with are not the normal names of the people who put this podcast together, but the names of the 11 people whom the Jewish community and the human community lost on October 27th, 2018. October 27th was the day of the shooting, but it might interest you that on the Hebrew calendar, that was the 18th of Cheshvan. And so if you're thinking about a day to remember them in a Jewish way, the yard site this year is once again the 18th of Cheshvan, which falls on the 16th of November. On that day, let's all remember Joyce Feinberg, Richard Gottfried, Rose Malinger, Jerry Rabinowitz, Cecil Rosenthal, David Rosenthal, Bernice Simon, Sylvan Simon, Daniel Stein, Melvin Wax, and Irving Younger. Zikronam Levracha, Vachashem Yukom Damim. May their memories be for a blessing. And may the Holy One avenge their blood. Shalom, friends.